One of the tricky things about being a senior pastor, besides the inability to get on stage in front of everybody at the proper time, which is a chronic malady of mine, <laughs> is that you can't really tell and show everybody because they're not with you, and many times it wouldn't even be ethical to tell people all that God is doing in a church on any given week. Uh, you didn't see Jaden Thomas get baptized. He's just going into eighth grade, but we've been having a text message conversation since we started talking about baptism in the Lord a couple of weeks ago, he's asking questions that I really hadn't considered when I was a Bible college student. He's just an eighth grader, but he's obviously reading his Bible with discernment and with the desire to do what it says. I, I can't even begin to tell you how meaningful that is. I heard a testimony this week, which I can't tell you about, of someone who is such a trophy to the grace of Jesus the things that were done to her, the things that evil people did to her in life were hard for me to hear. I can't imagine living through them. And then through all that chaos and all that devastation and all that loss, in part because of that loss, she came to church. And someone loved her, someone who's not on staff, someone who's never, has only given offerings, has never received a dollar from the church. Intersected, two women's lives intersected. Jesus in the life of one, carrying Jesus to the other. It's just, only God can do these things. We can't do them. We get to be part of them. We're commanded to make disciples, to see it happen right in front of you. Amazing. So always remember that when we receive our offering, when you give your offering, however you do it, whenever you do it, it's never about meeting a budget. It's never about changing the carpet. It's always and only about the things that last forever. The Word of God, the souls of men and women and young men like Jaden Thomas, who I'm pretty sure God's going to use in a mighty way. He'll stay on the path he's on right now. There's no telling what that kid might be doing. He might be preaching a few years from now. He might take my job. No way of knowing. Thank you. Thank you for your faithful giving. Thank you for your faithful service. The things you do in obscurity, your name's not on the back of the bulletin. No one's showing your picture on the screen. You collectively, you do 80, 85% of the ministry in this church. The pastors really just equip people and send them on the path that God has for them. But together, it's happening. We're glorifying Jesus. Disciples are being made. Souls are literally being snatched back from the edge of hell and the hardest, ugliest things I've heard in my life. That's happening right here, right now, because of you and your obedience and your faithfulness to God. So let's give with all of that in mind. Jesus, we're privileged to give. You taught us that it's better to give than to receive. We are happier, we are more blessed if we are givers than if we are receivers. Help us believe that and receive these offerings, Lord, however and whenever they're given, online, in person. Lord, take this money pray that it would be enough to meet the work that you've given us to do here and that you would use it, Lord, wisely in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep writing stories like the two I've heard this week. We give it to you gratefully. In Jesus' name, amen. I had an informal poll of the first service. And I'd like to see how the second service stacks up. Do you remember seventh grade? 
How many of you had, just by a show of hands, how many of you had a great seventh grade year of life? Very small percentage. Most of the cool kids, I guess, were in the first service. Many more people than I expected. My seventh grade year was miserable. It was awful. I think just about everybody's is. For those of you who, are, who raised your hands, congratulations, you are outliers. If you notice the people who raise their hands, they're super cool even now, so apparently they just started being, they started being awesome long before it occurred to the rest of us, if the rest of us even got there. But my seventh grade year was awful. My refuge was my church, my Bible, and a comic strip called Peanuts because I identified so deeply with Charlie Brown. That was my seventh grade year. It was tough in part because it's just pretty awful usually for most people to be 13 years old, but I had grown up in a small town for the last three years of our family's work in Mexico. I was in a town called Delicias, Chihuahua, Mexico, a little farming town in a private in a private school, first grade to sixth grade, there were probably a hundred kids there. I was the only gringo in the school, so I was notable and famous, and as someone might say, I was kind of a big deal at my little school because I spoke English like a gringo. As long as it wasn't math, I was pretty good at school. I was going around representing my school and little academic things, and was feeling like life is good. And then my parents, who were missionaries, made the regrettable decision. It was necessary. I understand it now. But that's the year they chose to move us back to the United States for a year of furlough, as missionaries call it. Missionaries travel around the country giving a report to their supporting churches. You've seen missionaries here do that. You'll see more of them. Seventh grade in Amarillo, Texas is a bad combination if you're growing up in small-town northern Mexico. Really bad combination. They say that the only good thing to come out of Amarillo, Texas is Interstate 40, and they may be right about that, even though I was born there. I can criticize my hometown. I suddenly found myself the frightened pupil at Bonham Junior High School in Amarillo, home of the Mustangs, and I was terrible at everything. And I discovered that unlike my really homogenous, almost every kid lives in the same neighborhood, has the same kind of clothes, likes the same kind of things. Bottom Junior High School in Amarillo, Texas was a kaleidoscope of different kinds of kids. Amarillo is kind of a cow town. So there were legitimate cowboys, some of them family members of mine who attended my school. These kids had gun racks and 22 rifles in the back of their pickups. It's a different time, folks. I don't know if that's still happening in Texas. It was normal back then. We had kids come in with mud crusted on their boots. One kid who would sometimes be taking his chaps off when he arrived at the local high school. There were also kids who we called stoners who had already started using drugs in junior high school. There were academics and nerds and kids who cared more about Star Wars than I knew anybody could care about anything. There were really brainy kids who had already decided that they were going to take classes that I didn't even know existed because they had set their mind on Ivy League schools, which I also didn't know existed. 
And then there were the jocks, as we called them. There were the athletes. And I'm telling you all that because in my seventh grade awkwardness, I tried on every single one of those identities except the drug user. I tried to do it all. I bought boots. Thank you for the laughter. That was a, a distinct, <laughs> contemptuous, that's never going to work laughter over here to my left. And whoever that was, pretty sure it was Rachel, is absolutely right. It didn't work. It was laughable and contemptible, so that didn't work. So I tried being a nerd, but I wasn't smart enough to be one of them. And then the most painful decision I made, I tried for a brief time to be an athlete. And I made the regrettable choice of thinking I was pretty good at wrestling based on how it was going on in PE, and I tried to take the spot of a man named Lane Meek. Lane Meek was fourth in the state of Texas in junior high school. I'd been wrestling for about six weeks when they had tryouts. I tried to take his spot and suffice it to say Mr. Meek, who was already a grown man, went on to wrestle at the University of Nebraska, and I went on to move to San Dimas, California to go to Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College. Why was I doing all that? Because I really didn't know who I was. I was trying on all kinds of different identities. My wife teaches junior high school, and I know some of you in the room do as well. You know better than everybody that how crucial and tender and vulnerable that season of life is. One of my best friends is a professor of education at Biola University, and he reminds teachers, it's good advice for teachers and people, that every student in the classroom, he says, has a silent sign on their forehead that says, please don't embarrass me. Well, I spent one whole year of embarrassment and mortification for one reason. I didn't know what normal was. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I fit. I was this weird mono-ethnic mono but bicultural and bilingual kid. I didn't really fit in well anywhere, so I tried all kinds of different things to see if I could find what every person in the world actually wants, which is normal. You just want to be normal. You want to fit in. You want to be accepted. You want to find out if you have worth, and if you have worth, you want to use it. But why am I telling you all this? Because you're Christians. That's why I'm telling you this. You're Christians, and you were destined by the sacrifice of Jesus to live the Christian life. You were loved, according to the Bible, in the book of Ephesians before the foundation of the world. In timeless, ageless past, in eternity past, when there wasn't something that we would call time, in the eternal existence and being and heart of God, He loved you. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, He chose you to forgive you and redeem you and give you a new identity, not rooted in your worth and your value and your achievement, but actually rooted in His amazing, generous, self-sacrificial character. If you read through Ephesians, what Paul is describing is the Christian life. And it's important for you to remember that as we conclude today the study of the Holy Spirit, because that's what we've been about, when you're reading the New Testament, we sometimes idealize the ancient church and imagine that these were exceptional people, and they weren't. 
the majority of the people who received the letter we're going to read this morning were probably illiterate. A great number of them were actually working as slaves. It wasn't the brutal chattel slavery that plagued the United States, but it was still servanthood to another. It was still a very small, reduced role in the world. It didn't result for most people even in the ability to be able to read. That's why Paul tells Timothy elsewhere, make sure you give attention to the public reading of Scripture because if anybody's going to hear Scripture, it's going to be because one of the few people in the church who receives a copy of a letter of Paul is going to read it aloud to everybody else. The Ephesians were saved out of the worst kind of pagan wickedness that you can imagine. Tell you a, bit, a little bit more about that. But the letter to the Ephesians, as majestic and deep and beautiful as it is, is written to extremely ordinary people. It's not written to the exceptional. It's not written to the bright. It's not even written to the educated. It's written actually for the most part to people who are illiterate. And yet, Paul insists all across the letter in two big movements that they live the normal Christian life. He tells them that the normal Christian life is available to everyone. That unlike a scared 13-year-old Bruce Garner in Bonham Junior High School in Amarillo, Texas, they don't have to try on a bunch of identities. They already have one. Jesus has already died and risen to give them an identity, and that identity makes them part of the family of God and unites them. Greek and Jew, Jew and Gentile, tears down a wall of separation and hatred and ethnic animosity and unites them in one big family with God as their father. What Paul is describing in the book of Ephesians is the normal Christian life and it's a great way to make as practical and as simple as I can draw together our understanding of what the Holy Spirit does for Christians. By way of review, I've tried to tell you in the last several weeks that the Holy Spirit makes us belong to the family of God. He shows you your sin and your need of Jesus. He gives you your eternal life. Once you're in the family of God, the Holy Spirit helps you behave as a child of God. Because it's not enough to belong to God, you also have to behave like His son, like His daughter. The Holy Spirit who gave you life and now lives in you, teaches you, and He guides you. And because though you're in a family that is united, you yourself are a precious individual known and made by God and redeemed by the death of Jesus, so God individually gifts and empowers you specifically individually to serve. That's why the testimony I told you earlier of one woman with the life of Jesus already in her intersecting the life of another, I couldn't have done that work. That wasn't my ministry. I didn't even know all of that was happening because God saved and empowered somebody else to do that. And then last week I explained to you that as ignorant as weak as we are in this life, the Holy Spirit is always interceding for us. As we stumble our way through life, not knowing what is best, not knowing what comes next, as we pray to the Father, the Holy Spirit prays for us. So now, with the help of the book of Ephesians, let me help us put it all together. Open your Bibles, please, in the book of Ephesians. And I'd like you to look first at chapter 4 and verse 17. 
for four and a half chapters. Up to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul has been telling the Ephesians how much they're loved, how much God and His sovereignty from eternity past has planned for them, how Jesus died for them. He literally prays that they will be strengthened by God so that they can understand how much God loves them. If you haven't read Ephesians in a while, please read it this afternoon. He tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3 that they are so loved by God that they need God to help them understand how much God actually loves them. That unless God opens your mind to the reality of His love, you can't even understand how much He actually loves you. And in Ephesians 4.17, the epistle takes a turn, as Paul's epistles always do. For four and a half chapters, he's been telling them how much they are loved, where their identity is, and then he says in 4.17, here's what we're going to do about it. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, four and a half chapters of the love and the security and the wisdom and the life-saving grace of Jesus, and then he says, and here's what we're going to do about it. You can't live the way you used to. And from chapter 4, verse 17 through the end of the letter, it's all practical instructions and very specific examples of what it looks like to live the normal Christian life now that they have Jesus. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Here's our passage. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are what? Have times changed? Not at all. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That isn't really my passage in my sermon, but I need you to see that along the way, Christian. You, an ordinary Christian, can know what the will of the Lord is, and you can reject foolishness. You're going out into a world to face a week that is evil, with both blessings and trials coming your way, and you do not know what and in which proportion. But the days you live in are evil, but you don't have to be foolish. Instead, Paul says in verse 17, you can actually understand what God wants you to do. Now we come down to verse 18, the normal Christian life. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And one scholar of Ephesians says, boy, that, uh, my word's not his, that came out of nowhere. We've got all this lofty, conceptual language of love in Christ, walking with wisdom through days that are evil. It's all very general. It's all very good. It's all very true. But then specifically, Paul says, stop getting drunk. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And there's probably a very good reason for that. I can't prove it, though I've read some of the scholarship around it. We can't know exactly what Paul meant by that and why he brought it up now, but we do know from the world of the Ephesians that it was a city dominated and world famous for idolatry. Literal idolatry, the worship through the use of things like physical idols, 
permeated and dominated their culture. It was a culture given over to witchcraft. It was a culture that along with many, an entire pantheon of Greco-Roman false gods, one of their gods was the great god Dionysius or Bacchus. He was the god of wine, and can you guess what his worship required? Wine and lots of it. And their pagan understanding was when we are drunk and when we begin to act out the desires that were always in our heart but that the wine has brought to the surface as our inhibitions drop away and our fleshly desires take over, not only is that permissible, that is good, we are communing now with the gods. And debauchery, sexual immorality, orgies, all kinds of wicked darkness was part of the ancient world and probably very specifically in Ephesus. So Paul says to them, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, what's it say? Be filled with the Spirit. And the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, is one we will need to explore. Because we're talking about drunkenness in the first half of verse 18 and about being filled with the Spirit in the second. What's the point? Let me tell you, first of all, that some of the worst shenanigans you've seen in the name of Christ have all taken place on a TV screen in the name of the Holy Spirit. His ministry, thank God, literally has largely faded, but years ago there was an evangelist touring the country and the world who styled himself the Holy Ghost bartender. And when what he called the drunkenness of the Holy Spirit came upon him, he would start laughing maniacally. And he and others in that movement would do things like wave their hands or wave their coat or make gestures toward the congregation and the drunkenness so-called of the Holy Spirit that had taken control of them would then take control of the Holy Spirit and it sounded more like an asylum than anything else because there were thousands of people laughing uncontrollably, in some cases laughing very loudly and obnoxiously even as things like hell and judgment were spoken of. Where did that idea come from? Well, it probably came out of a great deal of self-interest, but probably this phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, was part of it. I tried for weeks to show you one of the basic truths of the nature, the character of God, is that God is one who eternally exists in three persons, that the Holy Spirit is personal. He's not an object. He's not like wine that can be poured out of a bottle. He's not like electricity that can be harnessed and directed. Paul's word picture here is actually really simple when you put those two halves of the sentence together. Here's his point. Dear Ephesians, wickedness and idolatry and wild sexuality, particularly in the religious ecstatic practice of drunkenness, was part of your past before Jesus came in. Stop being drunk with wine. That only wrecked your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What does he mean? Stop being controlled by alcohol and start being controlled by the Spirit. The issue of the normal Christian life is one that is controlled by the Spirit because the fifth thing that I will share with you today that the Holy Spirit does for us is He fills us, meaning 
He takes control of us. He directs us. His mind, His power, His character, His wisdom, His plans. He's driving. He's calling the shots. He's running the show, not us. A few simple observations on Ephesians 5.18 along the way. First of all, this is commanded. It's not optional. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It is a command to every Christian. The normal Christian life is a life controlled by the Holy Spirit. Not controlled by anger, not controlled by fear, not controlled by lust, not controlled by ambition. Those are normal things that run people's lives. Some people seeking thrills or seeking numbness routinely numb themselves with alcohol and let alcohol run the show, at least for the night. Paul says, stop doing that. Instead, start being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And it's not, and it's not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing experience. It's something that Christians have to do time after time just as a drunkard will routinely yield control to alcohol on the weekends or every night if his alcoholism is very advanced, and Christian living the ordinary, normal Christian life will continually have to be filled with the Spirit, will continually have to yield personal control from himself to the Spirit of God. And very importantly, I need to remind you, this commandment, this ordinary Christian life driven by the Holy Spirit is for everyone. It's not the elite. There are no elite Christians. Please hear that. There are no elite Christians. We are one great family with God as our Father. All of us are just His kids. Do you know who he loves, especially among his children? That wasn't a rhetorical question. I'd like you to try. Do you know who he loves, especially among his children? All of us. Each and every one of us, because Jesus died for each and every one of us. You are equally loved and valued, whether you have little or much to contribute. You are in the family of God as a family As a child in a healthy, normal human family, you are loved with the strength of your heavenly Father. He doesn't play favorites. We're all different, and He gifts us and empowers us for different times of service while we're here on earth, but there are no elite. This ordinary Christian life is for all of us, not just some of us. And the issue is control. I like people who will admit to being what they call control freaks. I don't like dealing with them so much, but I do like that they admit it. I like when they tell me on the front side I'm a control freak, because that tells me they're self-aware, and maybe they'll keep it a little bit in check. Do you know who likes to be in control among us? All of us. You like things the way you like them just like me. Just like me, you think you're right. Every time I discover I'm wrong, I change my mind. And then something wonderful happens. I'm right all over again. 
Now, that's a little self-mockery, but that's the way every single person in the world goes through life. That's where all this chaos, that's why all this strife, that's why all this hatred, that's why all this self-seeking has always engulfed the world. The pandemic has just painted it in brighter colors. What Paul is describing here is the ordinary life, and it's as simple and as difficult as yielding to God. Let me explain. I'm nearly done, believe it or not. Here's what I need you to know. If you are a child of God, if you're a Christian, unless you were saved by Jesus just a few weeks ago, if Jesus really is in your heart and you have been responding normally as a Christian might by reading your Bible, trying to understand God's Word, and you have a genuine consciousness and desire to please your Heavenly Father, you almost always know what to do. Every once in a while, you'll have something so difficult that it is not immediately clear what the right thing is. But generally speaking, the children, the sons and the daughters of God who are genuinely saved by Jesus, we know the difference between right and wrong. That was present in our lives through our conscience before Jesus came in and saved us. And now we have the Holy Spirit who is not only saving us, but is directing us. For most people, the difficulty is never understanding really what the right thing to do is. What's the trick? Doing it. Everybody who's married understands that. Just yesterday, my wife told me to do something. I heard her. I made up my mind later whether I wanted to do it or not. She does the same. So do my sons. So do your friends. I'm describing your family. Every single person who was saved by Jesus before coming to Jesus was used to running the show. And even if they don't think of themselves as assertive, every single person, no matter how shy and withdrawn they are, they arrange their life the way they like it. And people who refuse to make decisions don't make decisions because guess what? That's their decision. They have decided that the best way to go through life is to not make decisions at all. But then the Holy Spirit comes in and gives you a whole new life and reassures you that you are now in the family of God and that you are loved more than you can even begin to understand. You are so loved, in fact, that God will need to make you stronger just so you can handle understanding how much He loves you. And all He asks for you to live the extraordinary, ordinary Christian life is for you to yield every one of your choices to Him. To not insist on your plans, to not insist on your feelings, to not make choices, to not build a life, to not choose entertainments, to not build a family or a business or a friendship or anything else in your life according to what you think is best but to, as he said earlier, not be foolish and understand instead what the will of God is. And almost every one of you, I guarantee you, 90% of the time, what God would actually have you do is clear because loving is better than hating and forgiving is better than begrudging and being peaceful is better than being filled with strife. 
And serving really is better than dominating. And all of that is clear to you in Scripture, and the only question is whether you're going to yield or not. When you yield to the Holy Spirit and you say along with Jesus in prayer, not my will be done, but yours, that's the normal Christian life. When you're afraid, but for love and reverence of God, you do it anyway, that's the normal Christian life. When you set yourself aside and you take up your cross daily as Jesus told you to do, and you go out into the world not so concerned about yourself, but concerned about pleasing Him and serving others, that's the normal Christian life. And Paul actually has some specific ideas of what it looks like. Look in verse 19 addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That means that the first place that the Holy Spirit-controlled life shows up is in the way we speak to one another. We will address one another, and if the Spirit is in control, it will sound different. Look up in verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Your speech changes, and godly speech, God-honoring, truthful, transparent, humble speech starts characterizing your life. In verse 19, Paul speaks about speaking in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about a life that is given over to worship, that you are making your way through life individually with a consciousness of God, and you worship Him as you go. Paul is addressing, remember them, as a church. He has their church gatherings. He has their Sunday morning meetings in mind. And he says, when you meet, you're going to be speaking to each other in the Psalms. They're found right here in your Old Testament. You're going to speak speaking to each other in hymns and spiritual songs. You're going to be singing and making melody to the Lord with your, what's it say? With your heart. That's interesting. In other words, your mouth is going to be filled with song and the early ancient, the early or rather the ancient churches give you something to look for as you read the Bible in the future. Often in Paul's letters, a little part of his writing will be indented. There'll be just a little block quote. And that's the editor hinting to you that Paul isn't writing original thoughts. What he's doing in that moment is quoting an ancient Christian hymn. In other words, Paul writes into Scripture the songs of the very first Christian churches. Singing was such a part of their life that there's this spectacular letter from antiquity when a persecuting Roman governor writes to the Roman emperor, telling them how he's dealing and how he's putting down this early Christian movement. It's a brutal thing to read because Pliny the Younger says to the emperor, I give them three chances to deny their faith in Jesus, and if they won't, I have them killed. But in describing the life of the ancient church, he says they gather early in the morning and they sing hymns to Christ as if to a god. So if anybody ever tells you or some new crackpot writes for the 55th time, the idea that the ancient Christians did not believe in Jesus as God on earth, 
Please understand, the Roman Empire knew that they did, and it literally made the Romans kill them. Singing together, singing in the privacy of your heart, making melody to the Lord in your heart, of course that's normal. It's both corporate and personal if you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, giving, what's it say? Giving, that was not very enthusiastic. And I think I know why. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A life controlled by the Holy Spirit is a grateful life. An ungrateful Christian is a contradiction. I'll say it again. An ungrateful Christian is a contradiction in terms. An ungrateful person who claims Christ is no longer acting as a Christian. In all of life, if there is anything in us that replaces gratitude, even in times of suffering, if there is not gratitude mixed in with all the tears at that moment, we've stepped out of the ordinary Christian life. So let me ask you just very pointedly for you to consider before the Lord, we've been through a lot as a nation, as a world, and we've been through a lot as a congregation. Would you say that in all of this time you have been grateful? And if not... That's you taking over for the Holy Spirit because the ordinary Spirit-filled life is giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 21, perhaps the most humbling verse of all, says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The life controlled by the Spirit of God is one in which Christians of every age and stature are seeking to yield to others. People controlled by Christ will easily yield to one another. And I don't know if you've ever noticed the very famous instructions that follow to wives and to husbands and to parents and to children and to masters, and to bondservants. In other words, the very next several paragraphs of Ephesians, in everything that matters, marriage and family and work, it's all headed by Ephesians 5.21. What Paul is calling for is, as you return to your marriage, as you return to your work, whether you're a master or a bondservant, Children, as you engage with your parents, parents, as you deal with your children, you're all to do it in a spirit of submission to the other person. What does that look like? It looks like husbands sacrificially loving their wives and laying their life down the way Jesus did for the church. It looks like wives in a brutally vertical and patriarchal culture continuing to respect their husband because they so respect the Lord Jesus. It looks like parents parenting not with harsh domination and through fear, but with tenderness, bringing their children up in the nurture and the discipline and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It looks like children obeying their parents out of reverence and obedience to God Himself. It looks in a culture run by slavery as slaves gladly submitting even to harsh conditions because of their reverence for the Lord and its Christian masters in charge of other people suddenly realizing that the slave actually is his brother 
And he has no right in the sight of God to treat him as anything less than a specially made and specially redeemed child of God, his brother and his sister. What did that ethic do to the ancient world? It upended it. It ended empire. It destroyed slavery. It gave us the idea that we now have of marriage and parenting based in love rather than based in domination, where wives and children are not property but cherish partners and members of our actual family. Who did that? Christ did that. How did he do that? He did that through the mutual submission when someone who is controlled by the Spirit gladly yields to someone else. What am I trying to tell you? Simply this, the normal Christian life will look, sound, and act like Jesus Christ. And I'll leave you with a question. If that's true, who's been running your life lately? Let me just sum up if you missed it. Because there's a lot in that passage. The normal Christian life is not you running things, it's the Spirit running things. And if the Spirit is running things, it's going to sound like this a few pages earlier. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the ordinary Christian life looks like. It looks like a life that speaks well of others. It looks like a mouth opened in praised and grateful worship to God. It looks like a life that gladly yields to others. It looks like a life, in other words, that has the signature in the very life of Jesus. If your life, like mine, has been scarred more by complaining and wondering and fearing, that's the exact moment you took the wheel. God wanted to drive, and you told him instead that you thought you knew a better path. The greatest thing you could do for yourself, the greatest thing you could do to please your Father and to bless the people around you is to surrender day by day and moment by moment, yield control of your life to God. That's what the Bible refers to as the ordinary Christian life. Let's pray together. Can I just ask you in closing if you know Jesus as Savior? If you don't, could I invite you to trust Him? What's that look like? That looks like giving up control, the very thing I've been trying to tell you about. That's you confessing to Him that you cannot save yourself and asking Him to do it instead. And Christian... Aren't you tired of trying to run everything? Don't you find it exhausting? Wouldn't it be more restful? Wouldn't it be more peaceful to surrender control as little accustomed as you may be to doing so? Wouldn't it be more peaceful to yield control to the king of the universe? Your heavenly father who loves you this much is, in his, is actually in charge of everything. Father, if there's a single person here who doesn't know you, I pray that as I pray, they would reach out to you and say, Jesus, please save me. I admit and I confess that I cannot run my life. I'm turning away from my sin, and as best I know how, I'm asking you to save me instead. 
And Father, may the Christians in this room and in the first service and those who were online and those who couldn't come this week will be back next Sunday. God, let us yield to you. Take control of us. Give us this normal Christian life. Help us day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision, yield to you so that your truth, your love, your character would be known. I pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, you stand for just a moment. Let me give you a warning in closing. I just told you at length that the ordinary Christian life is yielding control from yourself to God that you actually know what to do. You know what the loving, peaceful, joyful, kind, gentle, faithful, self-controlled thing is. It's just a matter of you yielding and doing it. Here's what I know about a sermon like this. Probably before lunch, I'll be tested. And God, who loves to give pop quizzes on things that you just heard in His Word, will immediately give you a chance to obey it. So your family, your wife, your kids, your bo- somebody's going to test you And you're going to have a choice probably before 2 o'clock this afternoon whether you're going to call the shots or let Jesus call the shots, whether you're going to drive or let Jesus take control. My invitation to you, when that happens later today, you take a deep breath and you say along with Jesus, not my will, but yours, Father, be done, and you go out there and live the ordinary Christian life. If all of us do that 70 or 80% of the time this week, we continually yield to Jesus and do what we already know is right, you're going to show the life and the gospel of Jesus all week long. There's no telling how heaven may be changed, how heaven may be populated if you'll yield control. God bless you. Go do it. The world and the life that God has for you is just outside those doors. I love you, and I'll see you soon. Call us. Let us know if we can help. Bye-bye.